This morning, we're going to finish up Acts 8, 16, 17, and then go to the next PowerPoint. To set the stage, it's been a couple of weeks, the apostles from Jerusalem learned that the Samaritans had received Christ. And so they came down. Now, they had not received the Holy Spirit. So the question is, do we have some sort of uh, ordo salutis going on here? In other words, does this prove the Pentecostal doctrine to be true? That the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a second blessing that you get saved at some point and then at some later point you receive the fullness so that creates of course two types of Christians those that are only saved and baptized in water and those who are filled with the Holy Spirit I was taught that in Bible college and this was one of their favorite proof texts but I think that's not a good reading because If you go through all of the different incidents of salvation and the coming of the Spirit in the book of Acts, you do not come up with a consistent ordo salutis, if you want to use that Latin phrase, order of salvation. Things happen in different order as far as when they believed, when they were baptized in water, or when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. There's no one order. Now that I am a lot better at reading Luke Acts as a two-volume work, it's clear to me where we were going astray back when I was looking at it the other way. Luke has a point, and Luke's meaning is the Holy Spirit's meaning. And so I'm going to propose to you that something that happened back in Luke 9, remember the two-volume work? I talked about this a few weeks ago, may help us understand why God delayed giving the Holy Spirit. Because in Acts 2.38, this all happened at once, okay? For Acts 8.16, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply, the word simply is manos, it means alone, only, been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they've been baptized in water in the name of Christ, but the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon them. Now, let me read something I wrote about this, and then I'm going to address this. And I found a couple scholars, one in particular, who I think has a good reading. This is me. There's no indication that there was something wrong with the response of the Samaritans since they welcomed the word of God. This is in stark contrast to the Samaritan response to Jesus in Luke 9:53, where they did not welcome him. Now let me stop right there. Remember, I think I showed you a slide with the Greek word dekomai. Okay, so if you want to understand the culture in the Middle East, I recommend that you read Kenneth Bailey. Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes or poet and peasant or some of Bailey's work. He has provided an unbelievable resource to help us understand Luke Acts. Now, in the Middle East, people totally depended 
on hospitality. And if you were a traveler, it, it's expected that someone will welcome you, Decomai, because of your need as a traveler. Now, Jesus had told his disciples that if some city didn't welcome, they could shake off the dust of their feet, Middle Eastern expression for, okay, I'm just going to go my way. If you don't want to hear what Christ is about in the gospel, we'll go to somewhere else. Now, what had happened in Luke 9 was they came to the city of the Samaritans. And it said in the Greek, in Luke 9, 53, they did not, decomai, welcome him. They did not welcome Christ. Now, the response of John and James was they wanted to be like Elijah and call down fire to consume them. Now, there was a long-running dispute and hatred between the Jews who worshipped in Jerusalem and the Samaritans who worshipped on Mount Gerizim. This comes up in John with the woman at the well. Now, there were other issues. There were political issues, and there were racial issues, and there were religious issues. So these are groups of people that do not like each other. But then in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. So now, Samaria, where Jesus had been rejected, Luke 9.53, was somewhere where they were going to be witnesses before shake off the dust of your feet, not call down fire. That was their little novel addition to what Jesus said. Okay? Let's just kill them and be done with it right now. So, this word decomai is used throughout Luke X for people's response to the gospel or to people sent with the gospel. So here, in Acts 8, they do welcome the gospel. So God had changed something. Now the Samaritans are different. They're willing to welcome. So one of the points that I want to make is this. You may have heard me say this. Back to what I wrote here. At that time, John was one who wanted to call down fire. So here, John is sent to pray for those who had, not resp- who had responded to Philip's preaching. The irony is that the Samaritans had totally reversed their attitudes and behavior. Now we will see the apostles do too. God changed not just the Samaritans, my dear friends, he changed the apostles. Now that was a big deal, frankly, to reject a traveler. Okay? So the Samaritans were guilty. If you read Bailey, you'll understand all this. But nevertheless, they now repented. And now they received Christ, who they had previously rejected. Let me make an application point. You nor I, we don't know who God is going to save. And don't assume that you do know. And I shouldn't assume that I know. Sometimes the most hostile person becomes the convert. Acts 9 will see that with Saul of Tarsus. Maybe you have friends 
relatives, co-workers, people that you are tempted to give up on. If they're still alive, you never know. They may welcome the gospel someday. And we need to not make our decisions based on our own prejudices. God couldn't save any of those kind of people. No, he can save anybody. So the Samaritans had changed. But what about John and uh, the other apostles in Jerusalem? I have here from Richard Longenecker an interesting idea about what's going on here. So I'm going to read that to you. I read you what I said. Now I'm going to read Longenecker. Quote, The Jerusalem Jews considered the Samaritans to be second-class residents of Palestine and kept them at arm's length religiously. And on their part, the Samaritans returned the compliment. It's not too difficult to imagine what would have happened had the apostles of Jerusalem first been the missionaries to Samaria. So he's saying, Philip, the Hellenist, was the first one. John already wanted him dead. Let me read on. Probably they would have been rebuffed, okay, just as they were rebuffed earlier in their travels with Jesus when the Samaritans associated them with the city of Jerusalem. Luke 9, 51 and 56. Jesus was on a journey to Jerusalem, so they rejected him because they believed he should, if you're really a prophet of God, you go to Gerizim. All right, so this, this came up. Longenecker, but God in his providence used their evangelist, the Hellenist Philip, who shared their fate, though for different reasons, of being rejected at Jerusalem. He'd been rejected by the Jewish leadership. Philip had. And the Samaritans received him and accepted his message. But what if the Spirit had come upon them at their baptism when administered by Philip? Undoubtedly, what feelings were there against Philip and the Hellenists would have carried over to them, and they would have been doubly under suspicion, says the Longenecker. But God in his providence withheld the gift of the Holy Spirit till Peter and John laid their hands on the Samaritans. Peter and John, two leading apostles who were highly thought of in the Mother Church of Jerusalem and who would have been accepted at that time as brothers in Christ by the new converts in Samaria. I won't read any more. But God in his providence works as he sees fit to bring salvation to people at his time and in his place. The Samaritans who rejected Jesus, Luke 9.53, receive him in Acts 8. God sent Philip the Hellenist to preach to them. And when the Holy Spirit came upon them in the sight of the apostles, that sealed the fact that God had received Samaritans. Now, I would submit to you, based on this reading, that whatever the manifestation was, we're not told, that happened when they received the Spirit was not a sign of the second blessing, as some say, but it was a sign 
to the apostles that God received the Samaritans. It's not a sign to the Samaritans that they're now baptized in the Holy Ghost, second blessing. It's a sign to the apostles. Now, to reinforce this reading, in Acts 10, when Peter brings the gospel to God-fearing Gentiles, the accusation against him in Acts 11 was you went to Gentiles and ate with them. And what Peter did was he recounted the whole story, the vision from heaven, the angels, all the things that happened, and how the God-fearing Gentiles received Christ and the gift of the Spirit, the apostles then decided to rejoice. So, well, God saves Gentiles. Now, they should have known that. Jesus said that. If you read Luke Acts, you know God's going to do that. All the way back at the beginning of Luke. There's reviews and previews in Luke Acts. And there's previews that salvation will be going to the end of the earth. But now it's happening on the scene of history. And so twice, the infilling of the Holy Spirit with the Samaritans and then with the God-fearing Gentiles were actually signs to the apostles that God saved a new people group. And thus, Acts 1.8 is being fulfilled. I think that's a good reading, and I'm prepared to defend it. And I reject all second blessing doctrines because it's not based on a good reading. See, everything's about reading because the meaning is determined by the Holy Spirit-inspired authors. Got anything, Eric? One thing I'm just thinking of is in Ephesians 4.30 later, after this time period has passed, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you've been sealed until the day of redemption. I think indicating that after this time period passes, as Bob's indicating, the Holy Spirit is dispensed at the hand of the apostles to those in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But by Ephesians 4.30, when that's written, it's normative for every believer to have the Holy Spirit. And so that's normalcy now. Yeah, this was just something God did sovereignly to convince the apostles that God received Gentiles. I mean, Samaritans. That's right. That's a miracle. Because they weren't going to do that. They wanted these people dead. Dear ones, God is sending us to places we don't know what he's going to do. God bless the evangelists. And I'm excited that with my weaknesses and what have you with health, the Internet is my new medium for evangelism. I don't have to go traveling somewhere most of the time. And so I'm evangelizing people who think the demons are getting them. And God's using that. God's going to use you. We lay aside our prejudices and realize the gospel is for all people in all places. And it's up to God who's going to be willing to welcome them, and there may be people who didn't before. To reinforce what Eric said, Dr. Peterson says, Luke indicates that the Samaritan incident provides a clear break with the norm we might expect from Acts 2, 38 and 39, through 39. The best explanation is that God himself withheld the Spirit until the coming of Peter and John 
in order that the Samaritans might be seen to be fully incorporated in the community, community of Jerusalem Christians who had received the spirit of Pentecost. I'm saying amen. People are able to see this and read it and understand it. So, God receives repentant Samaritans. A preview of this is found in John, I think it's chapter 4. Is it John 4? Woman at the well? Got it right. What do you know? (laughs) Once a day I get to be right about something. So I had this on the slide here. And as I said, I think the application is for all of us. We don't know who God is going to save. But we know how he will save anybody, and that's through the gospel. One more slide, and then we'll hopefully get to that next PowerPoint. Then, verse 17, then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. The promise of Joel 2.28 is again fulfilled as it was at Pentecost in Acts 2.17. Joel 2.28 says, It will come about after this, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. Let me comment on that. Again, this verse has been abused by people who want to have modern day prophets that are giving us new revelations beyond scriptures and Second blessing doctrines, all this stuff. Let me tell you, reading Luke-Acts and reading Joel 2.28 in light of Luke-Acts, what we really should be learning. It's not something lesser than what I thought when I was a Pentecostal. It's something greater, in my opinion. Because now you don't have two classes of Christians. You just have Christians. I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Who's that limited to? Nobody. All peoples. So this isn't just some new thing to happen. It was prophesied in Joel. Then it says, sons and daughters will prophesy. Now, I've published articles about this, and I believe that prophecy is to speak forth the gospel. That's what Luther said. And to preach the word of God, bringing out true implications and applications that God wants us to believe and respond to. So it's not just the domain now of an occasional Elijah or an occasional Jeremiah, but God's going to pour out his spirit on all mankind and sons and daughters will prophesy. We'll see this later. Philip has daughters who prophesy. Okay, Sometimes the term prophet is used in the New Testament in a functional way to mean prophesying one. And that can be anybody in the congregation. And and it's not new revelations, but it's the truth about Christ and the gospel and implications thereof. And so Joel 2.28 says the Holy Spirit will come upon people and now... Jeremiah 31 will be fulfilled, okay? Under the new covenant, everyone knows the Lord. You'll all know me from the least to the greatest. You won't be saying, 
to your neighbor, know the Lord. If he's your neighbor in Christ, he already knows the Lord. We're saying that to the lost, know the Lord. So all Christians know the Lord. All Christians have the Holy Spirit, and all Christians can speak truthfully for God. Eric. Of course, I know when I say Eric, a lot of hands <laughs> Which, may Yeah, go there up could be you. several. This one over I'm, here. I'm old Eric. <laughs> old Eric. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we talk to people. Uh, I just kind of went around and around with... Uh, with a, a, a Mormon uh, email back and forth, and what I did is that I pawned him off on my friend, Dr. Massey, who patiently, they went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But Mormons as well as Muslims, you know, the uh, we have an everlasting covenant. This is the key thing here. This is an everlasting covenant, the new covenant with Jesus Christ. And I think the word everlasting, it means that it's going to last forever and there will be nothing added to it and nothing taken away from it. And so there is no need for a prophet. And this would be Joseph Smith. This exactly. would be Muhammad. And this would be, uh, oh, what are some of the people? Uh, what's, Barb, uh, uh, what's the woman? Uh, uh, Beth Moore, <laughs> you know, uh, Sarah Young. Uh, you know, we don't, the, the, the word everlasting, it means that that's it, <laughs> I think, right? Amen. See, I'm, I'm writing an article based on what I taught up in Canada on the priesthood of every believer, based on what I learned from Luther at the Reformation, because he was fighting Rome's claim that only their special anointed ones could speak for God. And the rest of us had to shut up and obey them blindly. And that not only that, they could speak for God beyond Scripture the Pope and the councils and all that stuff. Luther said, no, God has spoken once for all, and all Christians are anointed, all Christians are priests to God, men and women, and all Christians can therefore teach. Now, any Christian, and he talks about maybe your audience is only your own family. I'm just telling you what Luther wrote. You're the mom, and you've got kids in the home, and you're telling them, who Christ is, what he did, why they need him, what he taught us, what it means to be a Christian, what God has said, and what's binding and authoritative. And that mom in the home is prophesying. Don't sell it short. The person sitting with a co-worker explaining Christ in the gospel. That's what Luther said. What is the best prophecy there is other than to preach the gospel. And we can speak authoritatively for God. And God's word is going to people. Say one thing, Bob, I just wanted to mention. Uh, we had talked about this on radio once. I think you made a great point, Eric. This covenant that we're in, the new covenant, is everlasting. What's interesting is the Mosaic covenant had a built-in provision to be superseded Amen. in Deuteronomy 18 when Moses says, God is going to raise up a prophet like me among your brethren. Well, we don't have that in the new covenant. And so that's why our job, as Bob is saying, is to prophesy and to contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. It's not to look for a new prophet to come. So, yeah, amen. very good. That's very essential because Mormons claim, well, there's a new prophet. No, Deuteronomy 18 told us there'd be a new one. But the New Testament says there won't. Jesus is the one. If you want any proof of that, go to the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah, amen. Right there is Moses and Elijah the great lawgiver and the great prophet. 
They're there with Moses. I mean, they're there with Jesus. Who disappears? Moses and Elijah. Who's left? Jesus. Who endorsed Jesus? God the Father. How did he endorse him? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's it. There's our lawgiver and our prophet. He appointed apostles to give the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Every one of you is a priest to God, if you know Christ. And Christ sent you to prophesy, like Philip did in Samaria. The only thing that differs is the audience. And what audience God gives us is in his providence, right? And don't sell it short if it's a mother with her kids. Yes. This uh, Joel 2.28, is that going to be also fulfilled again a second time? Like towards uh, when Christ returns or what? Well, this is... It's only, it's just fulfilled okay, just during the Messianic just age. Just one time. Well, throughout I the see. Messianic age. Well, it depends what you define as the Messianic age. Here's something that comforts me. I don't know if you're talking about the millennium, but this comforts me. During the millennium, Jesus will be on earth. Do you believe that? Yeah. Well, when Jesus is on earth, Joel 2.28 doesn't matter anymore because we have Christ here to answer every question. We don't have to figure it all out. When the millennium comes, if you're confused, send an email to Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, I don't know if they'll be using email. But we, right now we can communicate with the whole world, Right. Let Jesus answer the questions about the millennium. We don't have to figure all these. So all this speculation that goes on about the millennium is not really helping us now because when it does come, other than there will be a millennium and Christ will be the king on the throne in fulfillment of prophecy and he'll reign over all the earth. And there's a few things that are said about and Eric's talking about about what will happen, but he'll be here. What we need to concern ourselves with is what happens until he comes. And Joel 2.28 applies until he comes. If you, come, if you turn to the Lord by, through the gospel, you are a spirit-filled Christian. The delay here was only a few days for the sake of the unity of the church so that John would see that when he wanted to call down fire of judgment like Elijah, God wanted to send the fire of the Holy Spirit. John was confused about what type of fire. Okay. I think that's really exciting. So now John knows, well, these people who rejected us that I wanted to kill, God just saved them. Lesson learned. Eric, uh, I'll just say this too. You know, you mentioned that uh, that Jesus, you know, 
he, the apostles were changed by this. And, and in the same sense, that's what happens to us as well. You know, if we just get up every day and ask God to help us to do his will, you know, we might re- really not be very good uh, at, at teaching the gospel or any of that, but if we ask for opportunities and we have those opportunities, that makes us want to, to be better at You know, it's just God works with yeah. each of us, too, just like he Amen. did with them. He's working through the entire body of Christ, and Joel 2.28 applies to all of us, and God is doing it. And I see that happening I just saw it happen yesterday, but I'm not going to say how. But a miracle happened yesterday. Unbelievable. I'll tell you what. I want to, Eric, you can correct me on this one, but I'm going to do a little talking about the doctrine of providence, okay? All right. I'm preparing these. I Actually, I've already written the PowerPoint for Philip going out to the Ethiopian eunuch. Who knows when we'll get to that. But I already got to it. Now, that was a great, wait until you see that prick of me and the miracles that happened. Now, I was thinking about this, and I'm saying this for the first time here. You all can correct me. Technically, the doctrine of providence covers all things. If we take the phrase all things in the New Testament, literally, Romans 8, 28, many others, Ephesians 1, It means all things, good, evil, and indifferent, or whatever. Everything is under God's providence. Do you believe that? Now, that's the technical theological doctrine. I've written about it and defended it, and I will continue to do so. But in our usage, I've noticed something as I read commentaries and even me talking about it. When it happens on the scene of history... We use the term to mean God worked in an amazing way that I didn't expect. In other words, even though he's always working in all things, I just witness providence. For example, I've already mentioned some people that emailed me, and instead of getting short with them like I used to, I'd say, you really believe all these demons are going to do this and that, and, and some deliverance guy is going to make it different. And if they acted that way, I didn't want to talk to them. I've changed my procedure. Oh, let me tell you about Christ. And they all say, well, I'm already a Christian. Okay, but I want to tell you about Christ. I shared the gospel in, in Hebrews 4.16, the throne of grace, his authority over all things. Paul with a messenger from Satan asking God to take it away. Jude, remember that one? Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. He didn't dare do anything about it. So I said, let me explain what it means to have Jesus in charge of everything. Providentially, now here's how I use the term. Providentially, just recently, three people responded to that, and they're growing in the gospel. And they're getting away from all their shamans. Now, see, I think providence, somebody responded positively through a miraculous thing that happened. True, it is providence. Technically, everything negative is providence too. Is that right? So I've identified, I'm no expert in the English language, but let me make a little contribution. We use the term two ways. 
One is a technical doctrine covering all things, good, evil, and indifferent. And secondly, as we see God working as history unfolds, which is providence. But we're looking at what a providential event that God withheld the spirit until John saw what happened, whatever it was. Simon's going to want to buy it, so it was visible. Do you see how we use the doctrine two ways? So I wouldn't call the second one incorrect. It's just a limited use as we see something happen. I, I saw a guy standing over there. I went over, talked to him, and he wanted to know about Christ. I said, what a providential event. Would be. But if we went over there and he said, don't talk to me, I don't want to hear about Christ, that's providence too, isn't it? <laughs> we just use the term a little differently. So there, that's my little contribution to the English language. That's a scary thing that I would contribute to the English language. <laughs> I don't know about that one. Anyhow, any comments here? So I look and see what else I've got. Yes. Could you speak a little bit about uh, the, the story of Job and how he is so resentful that God treated Nineveh differently than he would have? Yes. See, the whole Bible is full of these kind of things. That's a good point. Look at the story of Job. And, well, you know, one thing that happened was, no, I'm thinking of Jonah. Jonah, yeah, okay. All right, we met Jonah, both of us. Remember when that little vine grew over his head? Because... Uh, Jonah was so mad that God saved Ninevites. Uh, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran away. (laughs) More like Luke 9.53. Called on the fire. God, if you want to just kill them. We hate these people. And then Jonah's thinking, there's only one reason God's sending me there. Because if he wanted to kill them, he could do that. He's sending me there because he's going to save them. And he said, I knew this was going to happen. So he's sitting there, you know, pouting. A little vine grows up and gives him shade. Is that right? Am I getting it right? Oh, I love this shade. Oh, God, you're so good you sent shade to the poor old prophet. And then what happens? The vine dies. Oh. And then what's what's the application? Aren't these Ninevites? Shouldn't you be rejoicing in what God did? Application. Dear Lord, guard our hearts so that we're not like that. That we're not like Jonah. We're not like the ones that called on the fire and judgment. But that we'd want God's mercy to be shown to people. Not that we can't get distressed with the evil that's around because we do. Next PowerPoint. Ta-da. Progress has been made. <laughs> Where's the mic? Who has the mic? Then you get to read. Could you read our text, Acts 8, 18 to 25? Norm. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, 
give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Go keep reading. Oh, through 25, okay. You have no part or portion of this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in, in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So notice there, thank you for reading the text. Now they're preaching the gospel, Peter and John, to the Samaritans. Isn't that an amazing reversal from Acts 9.53? You know, one of the great things that happened when I went to seminary was one of my teachers said, you need to buy Robert Tannehill's two-volume work, The Narrative of Unity of Luke Acts. It's the best there is on the topic. I, I got that back in the 90s and read it. Revolutionized, not just Luke Acts, but how you read. How you read. And this is a two-volume work. So what happens with John and the other apostles in Luke 9 is pertinent to what happens in Acts 8. For centuries, people treated this like they're two totally different books. You know what's the worst idea? Creating a harmony of the Gospels. I remember when I, Dr. Versiput, my favorite teacher on the Gospels, just... He hears that, oh, that's terrible. Who could do that? See, it's really, in a sense, saying the Holy Spirit did it wrong when he gave us four Gospels. We should have our history chronological and just this happened and this and this and this and this. There's the raw facts. So let's take the Gospels, cut them all up, and make them like that. Then it would be better. Calvin did that. You're making sure people can't understand. Do you want people to understand Luke? Do you want people to understand Mark? Do you want people to understand John? Do you want them to understand Matthew? Then read the gospel itself, because Matthew is using verbal clues to explain meaning. Okay? So Dr. Versifut says, forget gospel harmony. Get the gospels we have, and we're going to read them. And you're going to learn how to read and how to understand meaning. And he said, you're going to write papers. Now, I'm going to give you a pericope, and you're going to go and write a paper about what did John mean, or Luke, or whatever. And we said, Dr. Versa, can we use commentaries? Well, you can use any commentary you want, but beware, that might get you a bad grade, because they could mislead you. You need to read Luke and find out what did Luke mean? What did John mean? So how are you going to get that out of gospel harmony? You're not. You're not going to understand. 
Luke means that God intends to save Samaritans. Now, verses 18 and 19. Norm. 18 and 19, again. Oh, again, okay. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands... Uh, may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, do we know what he saw? Does anybody? We don't, do we? We don't know what he saw. But it was something that made him think I could add it to my magic act, whatever it was. Now, some say, well, maybe they spoke in tongues, like what happened in Acts 2. But that's not the only thing that happened. I thought about something. Now, it, we're just guessing, because we don't know. Tongues of fire appeared on the people when they received the Spirit. Maybe he saw that. Said he saw. We don't know. Yes, uh, youngest Eric. We got old Eric, medium Eric, youngest Eric. Uh, well, I was going to say, so I was thinking of the Simon thing where he wanted the the Spirit's gifts for uh, his selfish gain. I was going to go back to, because um, you were talking earlier about how God only works for, you know, back then to show Jesus. But I was thinking, you know, when he said no one uh, or this wicked and adulterous generation won't see any sign but the sign of Jonah, going back to that quote, I mean, he did continue to perform miracles, but to those who didn't have faith, I mean, his hometown, he said, he didn't perform any miracles there because of their lack of faith. Because God, you know, he's not going to do what he told us not to do, throw pearls before a swine to do things that we don't give credit to God for. I mean, if there was a miracle worked on television today and we all, you know, looked at it and didn't give glory to God but just came up with things contrary to God, like, uh, you know, I, I think he's just, you know, faking it. I think he's in here. God had done something. God doesn't work. I, he never has for entertainment sake or, or human gain, yeah. His, yeah, but he's, but it's not to say that God doesn't divinely answer prayers. It's not to say that he can work through a doctor to heal someone. It's not to say that he can work apart from a doctor to heal someone. It's just, you know, it's, he still works. We still trust the same yeah, God. Yeah, I agree. God still works. Yeah. And see, here's an important verse. Thanks. That reminded me of a verse, Eric. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Remember that one? I'm not trying to take away Eric's thunder from Revelation. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody, here's what we know will happen. They will be his witnesses. They will testify about Christ. And God may very well do other things like he did here. We don't know what this is. Philip had testified about Christ, but something happened here, and he wanted to buy it. But see, it shows that something was wrong was Simon. He wasn't a real convert. So much for baptismal regeneration. Okay. I'm going to quote Longenecker again. The New Testament frequently reports incidents and events from a phenomenal perspective without always giving the divine or heavenly perspective. For this reason, the verb believe, pistuo, 
He's used the New Testament to cover a wide range of responses to God and to Christ. I think he makes a good point. Earlier it said the Samaritans believed. And we had some hints that Simon was more impressed with Philip as if he were a magician of some sort. But it said he believed and was baptized. But the same thing we read in John 8, where some people believed in him, and eventually they wanted to kill him because they didn't like the idea of being free or being disciples. So Longenecker's right. There's a range of meaning. Belief could be just superficial or it could be a heartfelt belief that's committed to Christ no matter what. Do you see the difference? So just the term doesn't reveal necessarily the heart. This passage here where Simon wants to buy showed up in the English language. We have a word in English called simony. It goes back to Rome. Selling church offices for money. Uh-huh. We got a political candidate who's pretty good at that. Oh, well, uh, just go on. You got the money? You got what you look for. Oh, you want to be a bishop. Well, a bishop is so many pieces of gold. You want to be a archbishop, it's going to cost you more. That's called simony. Now, Simon wasn't trying to buy a church office. He was trying to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. Are you following this? Does this make sense? He's still a magician. He, whatever happened, he thought, if I could produce that at will, I would be really known as the great power of God. Luke did not tell us what the manifestation was that Simon wanted to add to his works of magic because Luke instead emphasizes the contrast between Simon and the apostles concerning their motives. The apostles were concerned with the spreading of messianic salvation. Simon was concerned with his magic trade being financially lucrative. Sometimes, how do we know who's the true convert? Sometimes we just end up with what John said. They went out from us because they were not really of us. Not meaning they just went to a different church. Eric and I knew a guy who was a theologian at the seminary. He went out from us. He's now an atheist. In the 80s, there was a radical feminist by the name of Mollencott. I can't remember her first name. And she was just tearing into Christianity as being uh, abusive to women. Well, the last I heard from her, now she's a Buddhist. They went out from us because they're not really of us. Simon went out from us because he's not really of us. That doesn't always happen immediately, but here it happens right away. So as a professional, Simon was impressed. We get hints of this. He was impressed with Philip of what was going on as far as God doing signs and wonders. So he wants the trade secret. Now, a little preview of Acts. What happens later in Acts when people burn books when they repented? What kind of books did they burn? Magic arts. Magic arts are worth money. Big money. 
Simon wanted the money. If the Holy Spirit will come upon all those who believe the apostolic gospel, Simon has nothing to sell. Dear saints, we don't have anything to sell, do we? We don't have anything to sell. Is anybody going to be better off if they send us money? No other than if people out of the goodness of their heart support the gospel, they're blessed. But you can't, we can't sell anybody anything. Christians give, but they do because they're excited about the gospel. Religious leaders have used this idea of selling stuff for centuries to enrich themselves. Lonnie, I didn't forget you. Do you want to tell that story about the exorcist guy with the golden crosses? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I... Hold on. After one of these sessions, Lonnie told me a story. See, even though I'm old, my mind remembers some things. Yeah, what, what is his name again? That was that Bob Larson. Oh, yeah, Bob Larson, yeah, yeah. He's, he's known for casting demons out of Christians. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like he does it on demand or what. I, I don't understand it, but uh, a friend of mine went to one of the uh, conventions or whatever it was, you know, to, to see him, and he said he looks at people's eyes uh, to see if they got like a demon in them or something, and then um, he sells this one cross there, that he uses uh, as an excess. Yeah, he uses a cross sort of like the movie. Yeah, yeah, it's a big cross. Lonnie sent me a picture on a website. Here's this guy with his backwards white collar and a cross, and he's going to get the demons out of people. Yeah, he sells that cross for $100. Yeah, so he goes to these meetings, and he said, now this cross was actually used and it's proven to work against the demons. $100, bucks. i will sell you this one. I've actually used it in exorcisms. Now, uh, he, uh, yeah, he has classes and stuff that he sells. Yeah, exactly. Now, so you're going to have demons until you pay 100 bucks for a gold cross. So how, Protestants like that who needs Catholics. So 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 how do you how do you uh you know, how do you contrast that with a ministry that sells a legitimate product like a DVD or book, or they distribute these books from other companies yeah. or whatever, and uh, have an organization that. Oh. Okay. Well, they got. That's a good question. Yeah. I'm not saying everybody that charges some money to produce books and DVDs has got bad motives. Right. What matters to us is what's on the DVD. If it's the true gospel, I'm glad to get it. If God wanted to deliver somebody from demons, why would he leave them with the demons until they paid money for a gold cross? Let me tell you a story somebody told me who's right now getting out of that pagan worldview, one of these people I'm evangelizing. She just sent an email, said, one of the people told me, that I needed to anoint myself with oil to keep the demons from getting me at night. And so they had this certain oil that the exorcist had prayed over, and he needed to get that oil, and so when you're going to go to bed at night, so you don't get bad dreams or anything like that, you anoint yourself, and then you go to bed. And I said, 
No, that's paganism. That's shamanism. Now we got holy oil people are selling. Magic objects. That's simony in its true sense. Okay? Dear saints, know this. People are superstitious. And it doesn't matter if they're out on a mission field or they're living in America working in an office tower in a suit. All people are superstitious. And if you have this oil and you pray over it and you tell somebody, you anoint yourself, let's just be specific, anoint yourself on the forehead, sign of a cross, you won't have any bad dreams. You sell your oil. But what is it doing? It's, it's creating a whole world full of pagans. When we come to Christ, we come from the domain of Satan into the kingdom of his beloved son, and we go to the throne of grace. Can you sell access to the throne of grace? Why? It's free. Now, is there anything better than the throne of grace? Here's, let's give you a choice. You can have this cross that has been used in an exorcism to wear around your neck to scare away demons, or you can go to the throne of grace. Simon chose the gold cross. Peter chose the throne of grace. Where are you going to go? As for me and my house, we'll go to the throne of grace. Yes. Uh, I just want to say this quickly. And are, Am I on? Are we okay? Yeah. I just want to say this quickly, and I expect you to jump all over me if I got it wrong. But in a few minutes, we're going to take offering. All right? Now, the reason why we take offering is not for Simon. It's because our hearts have been changed. And at this time and this place, we want to express that. So that's all right. I wanted to say. Giving is an expression of joy that comes from people who have received grace. Amen. But Bob, real quick on that. Um, there is a systematic theology text that distorts that. They claim it's Wayne Grudem, systematic theology. He claims that giving is a means of grace. Well, what's interesting is you read 2 Corinthians 9. It's the opposite. God graciously works in us, so therefore we, we give. give. And that's why he loves a cheerful giver, not under compulsion. But because God yeah. has done graciously in our lives, we give not to earn, not to get like Simon does, but because God has graciously worked. Grudem in his systematic theology has it reversed. Yeah, right. Eric and I heard somebody following that, and it was horrible. You can't buy grace. Tom. Yeah, growing up Catholic, um, we uh, used... Uh, well, Lord's, uh, you know, the water in Fatima, you look at all the, you know, the shroud and different types of things, like if I touch it, I mean, it's just used constantly. It just is absolutely all over the place. And I think as far as being raised Catholic, I saw it, you know, in our home, we would, we would do that. So Yeah. See, people, l- let me just do a little lesson here, and then we've got to be done. The default position of the human race is paganism. If you just let people be whatever they are, any religion they want, any thinking they want, just let them go without being constrained by the true word of God, they are pagan. That's the default. If you know computers, what's default? It's where it goes if you don't make any choices. How old are you? I'm old enough to remember default was a prompt. Right? You put your floppy in. And A, and then you could write in what program on the floppy you wanted it to run. A was default. Well, now it's your Windows screen or whatever. It's where you go without any outside influence. 
everybody is pagan until the gospel changes them. Tom, what you identified is that people try to be called Christian, but they act and believe and spend their money like pagans. And they try to sell the Holy Spirit. They try to sell the church office. They try to sell the anointing oil, the holy water, the gold cross. They want to sell holiness. The truth is the, is free. The gospel is free. We give because why would I? That's, that's one expression of worship that I want to do is to give. I'm not getting any more. I can't get any more than the abundance of grace I've already received. What more is there? Thank you, Lord. But that's the way it is. Thank you for interacting. Next week, we start on verse 20. Dear Lord, thank you for your kindness and grace to help us unworthy sinners come to know you. Lord, help us to change our thinking so we think like biblical Christians and not like pagans. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.